right, hey, uh, welcome everybody. Uh, special shout out to those of you who are new for the first time. Welcome everybody joining us online as well. If you're new to the church and I haven't met you yet, always love the opportunity to get to know some new faces right after the service. I'm right down here in the front if you've got a spare minute or so. Uh, I mentioned last week, well actually together as a church family, we prayed for the situation in Ukraine and many of you have been asking how you can help and get involved personally. And so doing, done a little research and a lot of you are already familiar with this organization and you know their reputation, but just two days ago, Samaritan's Purse, samaritanspurse.com, they have a cargo plane that they have essentially loaded down with what is a, an emergency mobile hospital. It's pretty amazing. They're flying it into Poland and then they're crossing the Ukrainian border and they're setting up this hospital. Like I say, it is mobile and it's great because it's for emergency and trauma use. And they've got doctors and nurses that are a part of that too. So if you're looking to get involved with your funds, then go to samaritanspurse.com for more information on that, all right? All right, if you got your Bibles, we're in Genesis chapter eight. So picking up where we left off last week, here's where we're at. Horrific event, <laughs> you know, let's, let's just be honest, horrific event uh, took place. It was a flood. And uh, there was one man who because of his righteousness, God used to essentially do a reboot. Because of this man's righteousness, his family was also rescued. God did what he said he was going to do. The floodwaters rose and we asked the question, why? And this is a fair question. If you're not asking questions like this, then you're not engaging with your brain. The Bible says, come, let us reason. It doesn't say, come, let us emote. Let us have emotions together. It says, let's think about this. Let's think things through. That's a fair question, right? If God is a God of love, why would he send this catastrophic event? Well, we learn the reason why, Genesis chapter six, verse five. This is the condition of, of the earth, mankind pre-flood, right? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. This is a very carefully constructed sentence. Every intention of the thoughts, not just the actions, but the thoughts, of man's heart and the heart was the seat of intellect, emotion and will. If you, if we use the word today, you know, when we say to somebody, speak from your heart, what we're saying is just the real you. How do you really feel about things? What do you really think about things? Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. And continually, as a result, we read that the earth was a theater of violence. Later we read that there is a demonization, widespread demonization of the culture. God mercifully intervenes. See, that's part of the, 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 the story, the account, the narrative. God sees this downward trajectory and the primary emotion we're told is not God being angry, it's God being saddened. And he puts an end to it, mercifully. And Noah and his family are on this boat for over one year. 
And now they're about to leave. And the world he and his family step into is completely different in pretty much every way. The landscape, the topography, completely changed. It's almost like he's, he's entering a different planet. After many months, we read this, chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. And if you're thinking, well, God, it's a long time to forget about Noah. You know, no, that's not the sense here. When you read this, these, this phrase, th even throughout the Bible, God remembers, when God remembers... It's not that he forgot, it's, about, it's, it's, it's that God is about to take action. God remembered Noah, he remembered the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind to blow over the earth. The, the Hebrew word for wind here is the exact same Hebrew word used to describe the spirit in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, when it says, the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So this is recreation language because what happens is God creates Garden of Eden, God decreates with the flood, and then he recreates with Noah. So again, we're going to see a lot of this creation language throughout the text. And the waters subsided. So this wind had its effect of drying up the flood waters. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. It wasn't just rain that fell. These subterranean water chambers were unleashed. The waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat, which would be modern day Armenia today. There have been uh, ark sightings for literally for centuries, uh, even before this time. But in 275, right around 275 BC, a Chaldean priest reported that there were men ascending a mountain in this, in this area and they were bringing down timber framing that they used to burn and make fires with. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month and the 10th month on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains could be seen. Okay, so we mentioned this last week just briefly, but I think it's worth re revisiting because it's so incredibly relevant to our own time, more specifically to our own faith. God speaks to Noah and says, Noah, you're the only guy I'm talking to. And what I'm about to do, you may not believe because it's big and you're going to have to trust me. Yeah, I know no, nobody else is going to really affirm my words to you. You're just going to have to trust what I say. I'm about to do something big and start over with you. And then 120 years goes by. Noah and his family are on the ark for over a year. Think about it. They wake up day after day, month after month. They're taking care of the animals. It's monotonous work. It's crazy weather outside. And... They have no idea when they're going to get off. They have no idea what's coming next. Question, why doesn't God give them the timing? I mean, isn't that such a big deal? Don't you think that would be helpful? So it's weird because you read through the Bible and, and you, you discover God's timing is not like man's timing. You know, we have this expectation, you know, like we want things done. We want to know times and places. And then we read this crazy, crazy 
passage from Jesus himself when he talks about his own return. Matthew chapter 24, verse 6, he says, But concerning the day, the day that I return, the day and hour nobody knows. Not even the angels, nor the Son, but the Father only. So the angels don't know, Jesus says. Oh, and by the way, he says, I don't even know the exact timing, all right? So we're in good company. Why is this a thing? Why does God do this to us, you know? I thought a lot about this over the last couple of weeks. I think in part, the answer is this. It is in the waiting that both patience and trust are built. I don't think there's any other way, (laughs) you know? I just don't think there's any other way. And here's what's cool about what Jesus says. He says that, listen, suffering and pain and waiting and even death are all part of the normal human experience. And then God says, I'm going to make sure that my son is not immune from this as well. What I'm saying to you is, if you're kind of in that waiting period, you're in really good company. Because you find Jesus there as well. Why? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. I think this affirms my theory here. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. That means there's some intensity in the conversation. Offered him up to him, God, who was able to save him from death. And Jesus was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned Jesus, learned obedience through what he suffered, learning and suffering and waiting and death, all part of the normal life experience. God ensured that his son would be no exception. You're in good company. Certainly trust, patience is built in life's journeys. Just to be real, it's in the midst of this waiting that personally I I can relate to the psalmist. I've said many times one of the beautiful things about the Bible is the sobering way in which it is written. In the Psalms, you have these people crying out to God. God, where are you? God, it's been a while. Do you mind showing up? Let me read it to you. Psalm 44. Why do you hide your face? It's another way of saying... You're not looking at me at all. (laughs) Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? So you're in good company because the ancient people of God felt like God was taking too long. So then it should be no surprise that all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, God's people are encouraged to be patient. Even Job had to endure a long period of trouble before he heard from God. You see this again all throughout the Psalms. Psalm 37 says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him. He will act. It's the timing though. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. It will be clearly seen and evident to all. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. That statement is necessary because people are struggling and they need to hear it. You know, why say that? if it wasn't a reality of life and the reality of your faith at times. Fret not over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. God has made a promise. He will fulfill it. It's the timing that's so 
difficult. So James is the half-brother of Jesus. I say half-brother because Jesus was begotten of the Spirit. Joseph and Mary had other children. James is one of them. He, becomes, he goes on to become one of the leaders in the early church, and he writes about Jesus. One of the things he says about Jesus, his half-brother, is this guy is the Messiah. One of the reasons, one of the reasons why you know Jesus is who he said he was is when, uh, like I have three brothers and one sister. I've said this before. I guarantee you none of them would identify me as the Christ or Messiah, okay? far from it, right? But, and neither did Jesus' own brother until after his resurrection. That was the exclamation mark. And so when James begins his discussion with the church, he says, hey, I'm an apostle and I'm a bondservant. I'm a slave to my brother. Who says that? Unless you're convinced. So he's writing to a group of early believers and they're struggling, they're having a hard time and he wants to encourage them and, and it's like, it's really rough and they really want God to show up, but he's just not showing up. So in chapter, James chapter five, verse 10, this is, this is how he tries to encourage them. As an example of suffering and patience, how about this? Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So in other words, what he's saying is, again, you're in good company, you're in the waiting period, and uh, you've got these prophets who've gone before you. They would recognize Noah as one of those great prophets. And what was happening was the prophets in their day were receiving revelation from God. They, they had the, you know, like the location of where the Messiah would come from. This tiny little podunk town, Bethlehem. By the way, one of the reasons why I believe the, the, we believe the Bible is truthful is the specificity with which these prophecies exist and have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, okay? Remember that. So all of these little details they're getting, and the way I've described it is, the Old Testament prophets had the puzzle pieces, but they didn't have the picture on the box, but they're trying to put it all together. Will the Messiah come in our lifetime? Exactly, exactly when and where? They didn't know all that stuff, right? But they endured patiently. Now, there's something that won't be lost on the listeners when James uses the prophets as an example, because what happened to many of the prophets? They were killed. They died before they saw the fulfillment of all of those prophecies and words by God given to them. In other words, they didn't see it in their lifetime. That's your encouragement, everybody. Don't we feel great? James is like, dude, if you're trying to be, you know, this, that, hey, you might want to pick up a Tony Robbins CD. You know what I mean? It's like, this ain't helping everybody, you know? I mean, come on, let's find some inspiration. He says, here's your inspiration. Those Old Testament saints wrote about things that they never experienced in their lifetime and they died. That's your example. But, but hold up now, because you see, we all live on this side of the cross. We know the promises of God regarding a forthcoming Messiah, and we know how Jesus fulfilled every one of those prophecies about his birth, his death, and his resurrection. So if Noah could wait and endure in patience through his suffering, you more so, because you have seen the promises of God come about. So even if in your waiting it doesn't happen in your lifetime, remember, we have something they don't. So this is, this is quite, quite brilliant, urging them to remain faithful as the prophets did all the way through this life and up until eternity. Uh, so here's the thing. And I used to ask questions like this. Are you going through a difficult time in your life right now? That's not the right way to ask it. 
you are going through a difficult time in your life right now. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're right. Are you? You are. Don't raise your hand. Who has a difficult relationship? Um, you're waiting. You, you know, when for 120 years, God, Noah was, he was, he was working, and he was waiting, and he was worshiping until that day that God made it crystal clear. My words were right and true. It's about to get wet. Noah had been walking with me, and now, isn't it obvious, everyone? I was walking with him. Took a while, but make no mistake about it, I come through. So, uh, if you have ever felt as though your trust in God is not perfect, be encouraged. Because he is looking for you to increase your faith. And here's the cool part. He wants to help you increase your faith. Let me say that again. If you're feeling a little down, like, man, do I, my, my faith is not like mature enough. It's a little weak. It's, it's certainly far from perfect. And I need some help. There's this beautiful account in life of Jesus, Mark chapter 9. I'll summarize it for you. Jesus approaches his disciples. There's this chaotic scene going on, you know, and Jesus walks up and he's like, what's going on, guys? And this father approaches Jesus and says, my son has a demon. And, you know, it's really tough for him. He's being tormented by it. And your disciples are trying, but they're not successful. And Jesus responds in the most unusual way. He says, oh, what an unbelieving generation this is. Bring the boy to me. So they bring the boy to him, and clearly the boy is being, he's being tormented. And, and the father, you can just sense the heart of this father. You know, this is his son. He says, Jesus, if you can do anything. Will you take pity on us? Uh, if you can do anything, take pity on us. And Jesus responds by saying, you know, everything is possible for the person who believes. And then the father says, I believe. But then he adds this. Will you help my unbelief? It's kind of paradoxical. Well, do you believe or don't you believe? What he's saying is, Jesus, I recognize that my faith isn't perfect. Okay? I'm not all the way there. Maybe I'm only halfway there. But will you help me? I know mean, how beautiful is that? I know it's, it's, not, it's not totally there, but I've got some. And what I really want from you is some help. Will you help my unbelief? I've got this belief, but then there's, I've got this unbelief and there's this wrestling going on. Will you help my unbelief? And Jesus does exactly what he's done time and time again. Not only does he do his work, 
but he gently gives correction. Because you see, the man's question was actually the wrong question. He says, if, if you can do anything. The question is not, can Jesus do it? Jesus can do it. Do you believe I can? That's the question he's asking you. Do you believe he can? And then Jesus gives him the answer. You are asking me to help your faith increase, to help your unbelief. Watch this. It's not if. I can, and I'm about to help your faith right now. And he heals the boy. Lesson. Don't get down on yourself, Christian. Don't get too down on yourself now. If you feel like, I just don't have the faith. I don't have enough faith. The prayer is, God, I get it. None of us has perfect faith. Will you help us? And then you wait and see how God responds. In the waiting, trust and patience are built. There is no other way. Trouble being obedient to God. Ask God, will you help me to enable, will you enable me to live the life you want me to live? James is telling his readers, be diligent, look to Jesus, and press on. So when God remembers Noah, he acts. The waters begin to evaporate. Now Noah has to determine when is it going to be safe to leave, right? It's, again, it's a completely different landscape. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent forth a raven. You thought it was a dove. The dove comes next, but this guy's smart because ravens really aren't that useful. You can't eat them and you can't sacrifice them. So the raven goes out. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand, took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days. And again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back, came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days, sent forth the dove, and she didn't come back. Somehow, I was thinking about this, this uh, earlier this week. Uh, somehow the dove with an olive branch in its mouth became a symbol of peace. I don't know how that happened. Maybe that is a result of this story. If it is, um, it's not entirely correct. Because when the dove had an olive branch in its mouth, what that meant was it's not safe yet. It isn't until the dove leaves, right, and doesn't come back that everybody's like, okay, she found a place to land. She's going to make a nest. She's going to settle in. That means we can leave the boat. But at this time, it's coming back with an olive branch, and it's kind of like, mm, nope, there's not, no peace yet. It's not safe yet. Uh, after the first service, a friend of mine came up and said, well, could that represent hope? And I said, that's a great point. And maybe that's the point, that there's a sense of hope, right? But peace, not necessarily peace. Hope, I can go there. The reality of the situation, this is why I started by saying this, let's just be real. This was a horrific event. Sometimes I smile when I see children's ministries and they've got their, you know, they've got their classrooms decked out with like, you know, a, an ark and they've got animals on the wall, you know, and this really cool kid-friendly scene, you know, and they play out that side of the story. I'm like, where's the dead floating bodies? 
You know what I'm saying? Because that's actually the point of the story. We're about to redo our children's ministry. I'm like, I have an idea. Don't worry. Yeah. Kids won't forget it. You know, they're going to know the story really well. <laughs> yeah. So it's a horrific story. And that's the point of, this, of the story. The account, the narrative tells you, how do I avoid that? How do I avoid that? Right? There's no peace until God sends forth a strong message through this dove. All right, so um, God speaks, verse 13. In the, in, in the 600 uh, and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried off, dried from the, off the earth. And Noah removed, I'm reading this too quickly, and I'm going to slow it down, and I'm going to explain why. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all of flesh, birds, and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply. That's Genesis creation language. On the earth. So Noah went out, his sons and his wife, and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. You know why I read that slowly? Because the language here changes. And the way we know that is because the style of writing. So when, when a Hebraic author wanted you to slow down, take your time reading, he or she would repeat. There'd be repetition in a short amount of time. So in just a few sentences, we read twice that everybody goes forth and they leave. Just a few sentences, the author repeats himself, right? Twice. Why? Because he's saying, up until this point, it's been fast and furious, and the floodwaters have been coming up, and men have been e evil and wicked, and there's this crazy storm going on, and our boat's floating around, and then it rests on top of a mountain, and then... Slow it down, everybody. Things are beginning to change. Slow it down. What comes next is really important in the story. Pump your brakes, everybody. It's been fast, it's been furious, but now we're going to slow it down because... You need to direct your attention to something. Isn't that cool? Right? So Noah's like a second Adam. He steps out of the boat and into the sunlight. There's animals moving about. What's Noah thinking? What am I going to do first? Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled... smelled the pleasing aroma the Lord said in his heart I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done while the earth remains there will be seed time and harvest cold and heat summer and winter day and night we're going to keep the cycles that produce life we're going to keep those things going God says they shall not cease Noah's first act when stepping off the boat is to think about and to give honor and worship to God. And God loves 
our worship. It smells good to him. It's pleasing to him. After 120 years in the waiting, God speaks. We're off to a great start, humanity. Up with people. There's a reboot. Things that, I mean, the best is yet to come. Let me just remind you of what God said in verse 21. I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Uh Uh-oh. Apparently, God's assessment of man's morality post-flood is still the same. Let me say that again. Post-flood, God's reboot, God's second chance, he says. Well, here's here's what I know. The heart of man is still evil. Okay, God, then why did you do this? <laughs> it's like, why, why, what's up with the restart, the reboot? If you know that the heart and intention of man is evil, are we just headed in the same direction? Yeah, ultimately we are. So why would God do this? I think for a couple of reasons. Number one, so that humanity could never say, well, if you just gave us another chance. If you just gave Adam another chance, as we're going to see next week, so many parallels between Noah and Adam. God did give humanity a second chance. Same result. God, once again, proves himself to be gracious and merciful all along the way. He even draws out for himself a people group known as the nation of Israel. We're going to have this special relationship. And what do they do? They turn their back on him time and time again. And God is like, this is my nature. I'm not going to abandon you. See, that's the story of the Bible. It's that God loves and pursues humanity. Humanity turns its back on God. The problem is not with God, everybody. The problem is with man. And God knows what's next. Uh, Let me just give you a little taste of it. The very next chapter, Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And some weird stuff happens. Um, We'll get into that next week. So like Adam, Noah had this garden. And the fruit from this garden led to his demise. Like Adam, Noah's sin had a catastrophic event on his own children. And yet we see God showing grace and mercy toward Noah just as he did toward Adam. Remember why God chose Noah, Hebrews 6, 8, but God found, fa- but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. To find favor in the eyes of the Lord, what that means is, that means that God was gracious, okay? And then we read that Noah was a righteous man, he was blameless, he walked with God, but that doesn't mean he was without sin. He wasn't sinless, he wasn't perfect. Even Noah understood, I need the grace of God. So here's the deal, the flood is about the nature of man and the nature, nature of God. Man is sinful, God is gracious, man rebels, God pursues. Also, God's patience doesn't last forever because if you read the text carefully, he says, I, I won't destroy in that way. You read the last book of the Bible, God will bring a final judgment. And yet, he provides a way of escape. So what's really cool, and I'll just summarize this, there's language in the New Testament that the authors use, the people use, that would immediately resonate with Old Testament and, and Hebrew, their, their uh, 
Jewish counterparts, right? For the Jews who are in the crowd, as the language is, is landing on people, they're thinking, oh, I, oh, you're using that language? That reminds me of this, you know, from our sacred text, which you know is the Old Testament. Our sacred text says, oh, okay, yeah, okay. You're, you're reaching back into our history and you're relating it to our time today. Okay, I got you. So this is where things get really cool, so fascinating. You read through the Bible and you just study doors. Doors? Yeah, doors. It's really interesting. So God used a door to save Noah and his family, the door of the ark. There's only one. And then later, when God calls a people group to himself, right, they're enslaved because they're rebellious. But God doesn't abandon them. He remembers them. They're under Egyptian slavery, man. It's rough. Life is rough. And they're crying out to God. God hears them. And he says, here's how we're going to go. We're going to put some blood, lamb's blood, around the door post. And everybody that has this around the door, you're going to be spared. And then Solomon builds this temple, and there's these two massive doors behind which is this really special place where God resides. Only the priest can enter there, the high priest. And what happens is he does his business with God on behalf of the people, and the people are spared. See, there's all this door language in the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and you know what he says about himself? I am the door. Look at this. John chapter 10, verse 7. Truly, truly, when, you, when, you, when it's repeated twice, truly, truly, it's like, hey, pay attention to what I'm about to say. It's important. Plus, this is going to resonate with you. I am the door. I am the door. And we, today, we modern readers, were like, I'm the door? Okay, cool, I'm a hinge. Okay, big deal. You know, what you, what's that about? No, no, no. Immediately, his listeners are recognizing, oh, we know all about doors and their significance. And Jesus says, yeah, but I am the door. And what he's saying is, in the same way that the door of the ark, the door of the ancient uh, Israelites, the door of the temple, there is only one way to be saved, and that's through the door that is me. Which is a pretty cool euphemism, right? A really cool way of explaining things because there are so many doors in this life that are being offered to you. Walk through this door. This will give you life. This will feed you life. Those are dead-end doors. There's only one door that proved he could give you life, and that proof was given in what we call resurrection. Period. End of story. No one can compete. Jesus gets the stage, the spotlight, the microphone, because no one else has ever come back from the dead. What do you say about yourself, Jesus? It's through me. So what doors have you been going through? You walk in, man, for a while it might seem like it's leading to something, but it isn't long before you realize it's not leading where I thought it would. We'll try many different doors in life until we find the one true door. So we need to pray um, because some of us, we have faith, but we need help. Others are pursuing wrong doors. And, and it, it's like we're in this maze and we're lost. There is only one true door. So Father, we're going to ask you just for your, as the scriptures say, for your help. And Father, as always, we pray that by the power of your spirit, 
you would enlighten every heart in the room. I know that there are some who are really far from you, but you know, none of us is here by accident. And we have questions and that's wonderful. We should be asking questions. Ours is not a blind faith. Help our unbelief. Those of us that are waiting, God, give us patience and trust. Let us learn from the past. You keep your promises. The coming of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection is proof of that. God, we, we won't stop believing now. Lord, give us what we need right when we need it. And as always, it, it's for your glory, for your fame, and for your renown, that the name of Jesus would be lifted high. We ask it in his name. And God's people said, amen.